Hey everybody, this is Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner here at Village Global. Some of you may have read the book that Reid Hoffman and I co-wrote in 2012 titled The Startup of You. In that book, we look at the best of Silicon Valley startups and derive entrepreneurial principles that can transform the careers of any professional across all industries. We revised and updated the book for the new world of work in 2022 and released a podcast series about its ideas, which you can listen to at thestartupofyou.com. In this episode of the Village Global Podcast, I wanted to share a few select segments from the Startup of You podcast, segments that are relevant to founders, investors, and anyone working in tech. The first clip in this episode is the story of the early days of Airbnb, one of Reed's most successful investments. Reed and I talk about how the founders of Airbnb were relentlessly resourceful and hustled to overcome hundreds of rejections when they first conceived the business that today is worth tens of billions of dollars. Let's listen in. Entrepreneurs are sometimes defined as people who are relentlessly resourceful, people that will walk through walls, live on ramen noodles for years as they get their company off the ground. So when we think about the strategies and techniques that entrepreneurs employ when creating their businesses and applying those to careers, this is a body of work that's super relevant. If you want to be more entrepreneurial in your career, you can take a lot of inspiration from these entrepreneurs that do so much with so little. And, you know, one of the teams that you backed early in your formal venture career, Airbnb, had a pretty incredible journey of rejection and iteration and hustle. And they did a set of things that were super clever and creative in the early days, which I think embody what great hustle is all about. And wondering if we could just start by hearing a little bit about Brian Chesky and Co.'s efforts to raise money and stay alive in the 2008 presidential campaign. Brian, Joe, and Nate, three awesome entrepreneurs, you know, good friends. And part of what they did is they would go and they would pitch the business a lot. And basically everyone would go, I don't really see this as a business, et cetera. And it was like, okay, we'll, we'll admit you because you got a lot of hustle, but they got tons and tons of no's, including to the point where, you know, they're for literally- Raising money for Airbnb. Raising money for Airbnb. And which obviously today looks crazy given how successful and world transforming uh, that Airbnb is. But back then was the typical thing. And then, so in 2008, they're running on fumes. They've maxed out credit cards. They're literally kind of living in an apartment by themselves and Airbnb being out a, a, you know, kind of an air mattress in the living room when they need to in order to, to like make in their it own work. place. In their they own place. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Right. And so they came up with a clever idea. They said, well, actually, in fact, along with these presidential campaigns are when the conventions come together are a time where it's a classic place where an Airbnb would be a, an awesome platform for everyone, an awesome platform for the travelers because all the hotels are booked out and people are trying to get in, an awesome opportunity for the hosts because they're like, you know, even frankly, a couch or a air mattress in the living room, like there is no housing. So like you have a chance to make some more money with just that. And it could be a spare bedroom. It could be you're out of town. It could be renting the house. It could be all kinds of things. This is a canonical, you know, surge thing for Airbnb. And it could be the, oh, I, I saw it. It was really useful. It was awesome to me. Maybe I should become a host. Maybe I should, when I'm taking that vacation to you know Italy, maybe I should actually look for an Airbnb versus a hotel. It's an awesome custom developer thing. And they said, well, how do we fund all this stuff and how to make it happen? And because 
you know, these are designers, which is the atypical, you know, with the Brian founders' and Joe. backgrounds were yes. design. Yeah. And you know, design. Nate was CS, but the other was in uh, industrial design RISD, and, and RISD. Yeah. And it kind of tells the lie to, oh, everyone has to be a CS entrepreneur. It's like, no, no, no. Their design background was part of what gave them the creativity to create the things that were relevant to make Airbnb the magical surprise that it is. What they did is had, well, actually, in fact, one of the things we could do is we could make and sell cereal. We could have Obama's and Captain McCain's. What we'll do is we'll make a bunch of cereal boxes. We'll sell them at kind of like high-end tchotchke. I think it was like $40 a box or yeah, something. Obama's or like Cheerios. But Obama's. Yes, exactly. And then Captain Crunch. Captain Crunch. But but Captain McCain's. I haven't had Captain Crunch in a long time. It sounds delicious. (laughs) Keep going. You think you might find it's a little too sweet. But they did all that and they made a set of these boxes, spent a bunch of time hot gluing and everything else putting together because they were selling out like in just droves, which of course added to the capital balance you know, also brought in experience like branding. It's like you're selling a product that people say, what's that? Oh, it's part of the Airbnb thing. So it became an artifact that was also a marketing artifact, just genius on lots and lots of levels, all the way to, you know, I know that one of President Obama's cherished kind of possessions is a uh, Obama O's that's signed by Brian, Joe, and Nate. Like a box of a box cereal, of cereal box. signed yeah. by them is yeah. one of the things that they gave him after he was president so he could actually keep it. Everything, you know, when you're given as president, because, you know, Obama is super high integrity, goes into the presidential stories. But this is one of the things they said, okay, you know, thank you. And and here is now finally, you know, years later, you know, after you're winning the campaign is a thing. And it's one of the things he treasures as part of the, you know, his relationship with, you know, Brian, Joe, and Nate, who he also treasures his relationship with them. In the second clip, Reed and I talk about reference checking, why it's important, and how to do it well. Again, let's listen in on this excerpt from the Startup Review podcast. Let's finally talk about reference checks. You know, decisions about who to work with in your career are the most important decisions you can make. And becoming exceptional at reference checking through your network is a powerful skill to develop. And in the new edition, really, this is some new content in the 10-year anniversary. We talk about growth loops and compounding value of soft assets. And one of the ways that your network serves as a kind of moat or something that accelerates in value as it grows larger is because the larger your network, the easier it is for you to do reference checks. Because one of the truths about reference checking is that if you actually know the person who you're calling to do the reference check, they'll be much more honest with you. But let's assume for this exercise, read that you may not know the person who you're calling to do a reference check. What are some tips and tricks? Well, first of all, maybe we should level set. One, should we do reference checks? Um, what are the use cases? We often think about it when hiring somebody, but should I be reference checking the manager I might work for? Should I be reference checking colleagues? Should I be reference checking vendors for hiring them? And then any tips that we can both share about effective ways of having that conversation? It's urgent that you reference check when the person is going to have a substantial impact on the life that you, you know, your your work path, your happiness, your ability to be effective, etc. So that's one of the reasons why reference checking so often goes into, you know, I'm a hiring manager, I'm hiring somebody, I need to reference check them. Similarly, you should reference check your prospective manager. It is actually, in fact, a really key thing to do that most people don't think to do. Yeah, you're being offered a job or interviewing for a job you often are ready to provide your own list of references for your employer, but we're saying be ready to reference check the manager who you might work for yourself. Yes. And one of the things that I actually frequently give as a piece of advice, people when they say, well, should I take job one, job two, or job three, is you know which person that you'd be working for 
do you have a much more kind of compelling relationship with? You're going to learn from, you're going to build a lifetime alliance with, uh, will be supportive of your work and so forth. Because that is actually, in fact, a much more important higher order bit than, oh, well, this one is an assistant product manager job versus this one's a product manager job. It is even probably more important that this one's a job at, you know, great company X versus a okay company Y. Because that relationship that you have with your manager, amplifying where you're going with your skills, your career, soft assets, everything else is super important. Now, frequently you won't know, and then you go, okay, well, I'll go to great company X or whatever else. But you're saying no by reference, yes. which I love. And there's this line, I think Marcus Buckingham, someone said it, people, uh, or maybe we actually said it in the alliance now, you know, who knows, um, uh, people join companies but leave managers, right? They often join a company because they love the mission of the company or whatever, the comp package, but then they become so disillusioned by their relationship with their manager that they leave. I wonder if the ideal scenario is join a manager, leave a manager. <laughs> like you should join a company for a lot of reasons, but prioritizing the relationship that you might have with your manager and your colleagues is critical. And, and as we're saying, reference checking those people. And this is where, again, you can use the LinkedIn product to do this effectively. Someone close to me was recently interviewing for a job and using LinkedIn, I was able to help them identify two or three prior direct reports of this manager who had since left the company and thus could be super honest about their experience with that manager. And that kind of intelligence is invaluable when you're when you're weighing a career opportunity. Yes, exactly. And so, look, there's a couple of general things about referencing. If you're really going to bedrock, until you've gotten to a negative reference, you haven't actually, in fact, done all your referencing because everybody has some negative part in their reference. And it might be relatively innocuous, like, oh, they get busy and they don't pay attention, or but there are things there. No one is only strengths. Then there's some questions around, like, okay, how do you ask the questions in a right way? And sometimes, by the way, you have to be careful about it because, you know, how does it get back to the person? But there's a bunch of things. Like you say, well, if it didn't work out, what would be the thing? Why would it not work out? If going to work for this person didn't work out, what do you think the reason would be it wouldn't work out? I mean, you don't, may not know me that well, but like what would be those things? Or look, everyone's a combination of strengths and weaknesses. What are this person's challenges or things that they're working on? And if they say, well, they're too perfectionistic or they work too hard. By the way, in a manager, that could be a little alarming depending on what it is. But you say, well, no, but like, like ones that are like the real ones. Like, for example, if, you know, people will find with me, if they're reference checking me, it's like, well, really great at creative problem solving, really great at a kind of that out of the box thinking and a great firefighter for crises, not as good at running the trains on time, right? Because strengths and weaknesses kind of tend to go together. And like, you know, when I'm building organizations, I know that about myself. So I hire other people to help me with that and, and to build it strength in them. That would be like a strength weakness paired if someone were reference checking me. It's a good point. And like, so if someone's offering a bunch of positive flowing commentary on a strength, you could, as if you're doing the reference check, you could say, hey, you know, every strength usually has a weakness. What do you think the inverse of this is? Or what weakness or shadow is this strength aligned with? But I think also helping people who are fans of the candidate speak positively in the beginning, sort of like, yes, rave about the person you love and encourage that, wow, this person sounds really awesome. Okay, now let's talk about some of the weaknesses. Like, even great people are going to have these weaknesses, but their fans, their references are going to want to be able to brag about them first so they feel like they've kind of checked the box of being a good ally. One sort of really tactical nugget I heard which I thought was intriguing was I've had a hard time sometimes referencing folks that worked at large companies. Like, I was trying to reference somebody once who worked at Goldman Sachs, and everyone at Goldman was on a complete lockdown. Like, we cannot violate our policy of we don't provide reference checks, we can only confirm employment, et cetera, et cetera. 
And that is something you'll sometimes run into. It will be hard to get an official reference check. I like this technique of texting or calling somebody and saying, hey, I'm you know, trying to learn more about Jane Doe. You know, please text or call me back if the person's truly outstanding. No worries if not. You know, if you think this person's really a killer, we'd love to grab five minutes. And then even if they call you back and say, hey, I really can't talk to you because of our policy, that's still a good signal. And if they don't call back or don't text back, well, then they basically told you in not so many words that they may not be A+. plus. Yep. And that's, I think, a great technique. And another one of it is kind of the, if you can't tell me anything, I'll presume that it's so bad that <laughs> uh, that you, you're on this kind of lockdown because it's so negative. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and frequently people, if they go, oh, wait a minute. No, no, the person's pretty good. Like, look, I can't really talk about it. I have a policy, but the person's pretty good. You can, by going either super positive, saying, okay, if you're not going to talk to me, I'm going to assume not super positive. Another one is, if you're not going to talk to me, I'm going to assume super negative. And both of those things can kind of cause people to at least give some signal. Yeah, and sometimes asking people about you know tips for how to work. Hey, I'm, I'm going to start working. I think I'm going to be working with Reed soon. Any tips on how to best partner with him? Sort of framing it as give me advice on how to best collaborate can sometimes access more honest feedback than, so what do you think of Reed as a human being? What are his strengths and weaknesses? Sometimes people clam up to speak poorly about someone who they respect, but if framed in the context of, hey, I'm really impressed, have a lot of great interviews, a lot of great conversations, think it's probably going to work out, would love some of your advice on if I were to work with Reed, how should I best be his partner? And there's a parallel that I do in recruiting that's probably useful for most people because most people worry about like, well, say you're recruiting a person from a job at Goldman and they're in the job at Goldman and you you want to get, you know, kind of feedback from other people. But on the other hand, you don't want to pollute the environment around the person. It's yep. all kinds of bad things. And so frequently what I'll do is when I'm calling a reference, I won't say, well, I'm interviewing and I'm thinking about giving a job or we're very close to giving a job. I'll say, you know, I was told that maybe I should recruit this guy, you know, Ben or this woman, Sarah, and I've heard some great things. Are they someone I should try to reach out to and recruit? Like you can think about that parallel that just a slight sidestep can still get you all or 95% of the referential information you want without the kind of possibly disastrous tells of something that might be a side consequence that would be very bad. Totally. Yeah. I mean, this is like in the hyper nuance part of it, but I think it's, it's important, especially at higher levels of recruiting or reference checking, which is you don't want to put the person who's giving the reference, making them a co-conspirator and like this disastrous thing of where you've recruited somebody out of a company. It's this whole political situation. So you're trying to give them sort of not plausible deniability because yes. they think how your framing works. I mean, and I, also I, they might not even really know. They might say, look, they're really great, but I, I doubt you could hire them. And yeah. it's like, okay, great. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> In the final clip of this episode, we talk about risk, why we're evolutionarily wired to overestimate the risks involved in a given decision, why it's important to take smart risks, and we discuss a few frameworks for thinking more rationally about risk. Again, let's listen in. And as you say, Reed, the assessing risk is really important. I think one of the things that's critical about the real world versus the academic world of risk models is that in the real world, we often don't have complete information. Things are moving quickly. We have to make decisions in sort of murky, gray, foggy conditions. And so, you know, if you Google this topic, you'll find lots of academic modeling, uh, Wall Street frameworks for assessing, you know, financial markets risk. But in the real world, as an individual person trying to run an entrepreneurial life, much of that advice or for those frameworks or models are not particularly helpful. And so one of the things we try to do in the book is lay out a set of you know, practical tips and tricks for making better risk assessments. 
day to day. And, you know, one of the things we say sort of piggybacking on your last point there, Reed, about it's easy to overrate risk in our minds is we talk a little bit about what psychologists call the negativity bias, which is this idea that we're wired, evolutionarily speaking, to play a kind of conservative game in life, right? Our sort of mandate is to survive and pass on our genes going out and pushing yourself to explore and deepen your mind and take on a dynamic life path that will be fulfilling and interesting and change the world, that's not really part of our natural makeup. That's why so many of us, by default, will encounter an opportunity, encounter a career scenario in our own minds, really ratchet up the fear and overrate, overstate the risk that it may involve, right? We can tell ourselves a story of, oh my God, I can go to my boss and pitch him or her on this project I've always wanted to do, but if they say no or they reject me, that will be terrible and that might destroy my career and I'll get fired and then once I get fired, I'll never be able to find another job after that and this will be terrible. Okay, so I shouldn't go talk to my boss. I'm just gonna stay a good little loyal soldier and put my head down. And that kind of self-talk can be very destructive. So the first you know, tip that we might offer is when you're evaluating a risk, just know that you're probably biased to overstate the risk and a lot of things are actually not as risky as you may be telling yourself. So I'll give two examples from very early in my career about risk decisions. One was decided not to be an academic. I was at Oxford. Okay, I'm going to turn down these job offers from the management consulting firms and the investment banks because I don't think that's the right fit for me. I actually think going and creating technology and the technology industry and building things are the right fit. I didn't have anything. But I called a few friends and I said, look, is the industry vibrant? Is it able to get in? They said, well, you might have to do some consulting first and you wouldn't necessarily be giving a full-time employee position first. And I said, okay, great. I'll take that risk and I'll navigate that and I'll do that because that's so important from that kind of different choice. Then, as per your, your last thing is, my first way of getting into working at Apple, working on this project called their eWorld product, the way the path in was through the user experience group. Because like, look, I'll do these things and I'll start as a contractor, I'll become a full-time employee. But as I began to assess that, I realized that that wasn't the right career path for me. You know, I was learning some interesting things, I was contributing in useful ways, but that path was I was getting out of that there. And that product management would be a much better place for me to be relative to creating products, possibly becoming an entrepreneur, other kinds of things. And so I went to the, not even my boss, although actually I think I mentioned to my boss that I was going to go to James Isaacs and say, hey, I'm going to write out some product plans. Would you please read them? And if you like them, would you assemble a group to listen to them? And 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 just to unpack that risk there, because that's interesting. This is a subtle point about sort of org politics and stuff, which people should probably think about if they work at a large company, especially, which is you went to your boss's boss or some other senior leader in the organization who was not your direct manager and basically said, I know I'm being employed and pay to do X, but on the side, I want to also do Y. And there's risk involved in that because first off, you're going above your direct manager to somebody, which is always challenging an organization. And then also you're basically saying, I want to be distracted from my job to do this other thing that I want to do. And so it would be totally logical for you to have said, oh, that's not worth it. Because what if this boss's boss says, get back to work? What are you, what are you talking about, kid? Like, this is not, this is not what we hired you to do. Yes. And so I actually think I did talk to my boss just on a, look, I'm going to go ask to do this. By the way, it's not going to affect my work at all. So it's like, oh, I understand the normal objection to this and I'm going to make sure that it doesn't. I was like, okay, fair enough. Let me know if it does, was kind of the answer. And then I went to James and I said, look, it's totally good if like, you look at it for two minutes and you don't think it's worth the time. That's totally cool. I just think it's really important for me to try this. 
And I also had gotten to know James well enough to know that he was kind of an encourager of young talent. We'd had good conversations before. So he said, sure, like, fine, you're going to go and spend a weekend working on something. You're going to deliver me something. You know, I'm going to print it out. I'm going to open up page one. If I, by page two, I'm like, eh, you know, you've given me the out where I can say you would need to really improve this a whole lot. And then, of course, I put in a ton of work to make it interesting and good such that James' reaction was, oh, this is kind of interesting. Let me assemble some of the product managers. Let's sit down and we'll do a group critique of this. So another technique we talk about in the book is to think hard about a risk before walking through a one-way door. And this is kind of a funny inside baseball book writing thing. So 10 years ago, we wrote the first edition of the Startup Review. We talked about decisions that are reversible and decisions that are not reversible. And we said, be really thoughtful about decisions that are not reversible. Like the sorts of risks that are things that you cannot undo are risks to really be on top of. And then sometime in the last decade, Jeff Bezos gave a speech in which he talked about one-way doors versus two-way doors, which is the exact same concept that we had articulated in the book and probably others have written about. I'm not certain we invented the idea of reversible risk. But speaking to the point of the power of phrases and coining things, this one-way door, two-way door thing that Bezos coined really took off and is indeed a really memorable way to put it. And so we, in the revised edition, updated our uh, tip here and talked about it in Bezos's terms, one-way doors versus two-way doors. But it's this more straightforward concept of if you're thinking about a decision that you can't undo, uh, be careful about it. And one of the examples we give is uh, you know, great entrepreneur Michael Dell started Dell Technologies in his dorm room at the University of Texas. But instead of fully dropping out to start the company, he wanted to leave of absence just created the optionality. It was a little bit, he says, to assuage his mother's concerns and probably a little bit of just the rational of, hey, I don't know if this is going to work and I'd like to go back to school if this doesn't. You know, in that case, it's trying to enable some reversibility to a decision. But if there's truly no option and it's like I have to either drop out or start this business, that's where you really want to be doing a lot more network intelligence, a lot more analysis, a lot more reflection to make sure that that's a risk worth taking. And also the one thing while the one-way and two-way door is great and compelling metaphor and frame for thinking about things. Part of the reason why we bowed to a smart framing <laughs> and, and said, let's use that one. Bow you at know? the altar of Jeff. <laughs> yes. Well, and also, look, this is how we all learn is kind of what are the different frames mm -hmm. for, for doing these things and what is kind of compelling that everyone can remember and have heuristics and principles to apply. Actually, in fact, frequently, you really can't get back to where you were before. The two-way door is, it's actually not that. It's like, what are your risk mitigations? That's part of the reason why we do ABZ planning. Because like, look, I'll go through this door, but can I get back to another point? Or can I shift path in a way that isn't like the, for example, is it a one-way door that's off a cliff where I have no parachute? Or is it a one-way door where we go, well, okay, that's a one-way door, but I can also do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I think the issue is, the two-way door, what you're picking up on, which is a fantastic subtlety, which is if people think that you walk through the door, oh, it's the wrong decision, I step back out the door, and I'm back in the exact same place I was before, that's a myth. Yes. Right, because the world's changed, you changed, competition, so that you can never just simply roll back the clock. Yes. I think the idea of the two-way door or the reversible decision is you can roll the clock back to an asset position that's equivalent to where you were before, yes. but it won't actually be the same like location on the map. Yeah, 100%. And... And like, for example, that's like the try something on a side hustle. Go write a product management plan on the side. It's like, okay, that didn't work. Okay, I just keep doing my job as a winner or try again in a different way, et cetera. All those are largely in the same place. And of course, what is meant by this. But part of the reason I go to the more general framework is because you can go through one-way doors, 
not have them be totally as risky if you think, well, I do have other paths that I get to. It's not go back through the door, but I can fairly quickly move to this other door, right, and go to this other thing. And that's part of the ABZ planning framework. So it isn't only the draconian one-way door or the two-way door. There is a nuance of kind of like what the risk mitigation and taking risk smartly, intelligently, how you can plan it and how you can monitor it and how you can navigate it. And Warren Buffett once said, be fearful when others are greedy, be greedy when others are fearful. And we apply that same principle to the career landscape, which is one of the more interesting ways that you can take risk in your career that could provide or create differentiated return is to pursue opportunities where other people have sort of irrational fear, where opportunities are mispriced on a risk basis. And so it can kind of be fun to think about things you can do in your career where a lot of other people are avoiding that opportunity, but you have a sort of smarter, differentiated perspective on the actual risk involved. And so one easy, straightforward example here is a lot of people, especially younger people, overrate how much a job will pay and underrate how much they can learn. And so jobs that pay less but offer tremendous learning can be jobs that some people would say is too, are too risky. Oh my gosh, I'm barely going to you know make ends meet, make rent, etc. But you, with a better appreciation of soft assets, can see, ooh, that's actually an opportunity that's that's worth pursuing. Another example of a career opportunity where people often overstate the risk, and so you could see a differentiated edge, is part-time or contract gigs, gigs that are less stable. Right? We tend to have this thing of, a lot of people have a, a psychological bias where, oh, this isn't like a full-time job position. That's risky. And in fact, as we talk about portfolio careers in the book, a new theme in the updated edition, sometimes a contract gig, uh, 20 hours a week, uh, five hours a week for a year and a half, sometimes those are those very sorts of gigs that can actually produce tremendous network value, a lot of learning, or just serve as a trampoline to your next great career opportunity. So there you have it, some excerpts from the Startup Review podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, I'm Ben Kasnoka. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.